0: Thank you for joining us for Following Christ, a weekly devotional podcast from One Passion Ministries featuring Dr. Stephen J. Lawson. Dr. Lawson will explore the life and teachings of Christ and show us how we can follow Him more closely in our Christian walk. Let's join Dr. Lawson. Matthew chapter 5. Today, I want us to look yet again at verse 3. We have begun a short series on the Beatitudes, which I believe is found at the beginning of the most important sermon that has ever been preached by any human being on this planet. It was preached by the One sent from God, the One who is God in human flesh, Jesus Christ our Lord. He is the greatest preacher to ever walk this earth Fully God, fully man, He came to speak the very words of God to us en route to going to the cross and there to die for our sins. And these Beatitudes find themselves, I believe, in such a strategic place in the Word of God that I want us to spend several Lord's Days together just unpacking the riches that are contained in this treasure box. Last time together, we began looking at verse 3, Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. But there is more that I yet want to say about this important text. Not just to prolong something, but I want to take you down yet even further into this text because I know something of what is needed for our spiritual lives. That there must be a depth about us as a people of God. Uh, We cannot live shallow, superficial Christian lives that are like butterflies just flitting about and merely content with what lays on the surface. But instead, we must be like miners who go down deep into the crust of the earth. That is where the gold is. That is where the silver is. That is where the precious jewels are found. And so I want us to look yet again at this passage. And I want to begin by reading verses 1 through 3, as is our practice, to begin with the reading of the text that will be preached, beginning in verse 1. When Jesus saw the crowds, He went up on the mountain, and after He sat down, His disciples came to Him. He opened his mouth and began to teach them, saying, Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. The title of the message today is, Why Being Poor in Spirit is So Important. There are certain truths taught in the Bible that are so fundamental and so basic and that it seems as if countless other truths in the Bible hang on our understanding of knowing these core truths. The truth that we are looking at this morning, being poor in spirit, is one of these strategic truths that is absolutely critical in understanding so many other doctrines. To be right here positions us to be right in understanding so much of the rest of our Bible. But to miss it here causes us to have limited understanding of other Scripture. It was great Martin, the great Martin Lloyd-Jones, the expositor in London of the last century, who preached through the Beatitudes and left such an influence upon the evangelical church He wrote regarding being poor in spirit, it is not surprising that this is the first, because it is obviously, as I think we shall see, the key of all that follows. Lloyd Jones continues, there is no one in the kingdom of God who is not poor in spirit. It is the fundamental characteristic of the Christian and of the citizen of the kingdom of heaven. And all the other characteristics are, in a sense, the result of this one. And then the doctor concluded, this is the foundation of everything else. This is to say that all of the other Beatitudes... Flow out of this first beatitude. But to go yet further, every Christian virtue arises out of this beatitude. If this is not true in our lives, then we have no virtue in our lives. In fact, being poor in spirit is that important Every spiritual grace grows out of the fertile soil of being poor in spirit. This is why it comes first. So what is it to be poor in spirit? Let me just summarize what we looked at last time together and state it in a different way. To be poor in spirit is to come to the place of seeing yourself in the light of the holiness of God. It is a complete absence of pride, a complete absence of self-assurance and self-reliance. It means a consciousness that we are nothing in the presence of the light of the holiness of God. It is this acute awareness of our utter nothingness as we come face to face with God. It is to realize that I am nothing, that I have nothing, and that I can do nothing apart from Christ in my life. It is to come to the end of myself. It is to die to self. It is to look to God in utter submission before Him. It is to live in complete dependence upon God. It is to come to God with an empty hand and ask that He alone fill it and to meet all of my needs. It is to acknowledge my own poverty of spirit. My own inward spiritual bankruptcy of heart that I have nothing by which to commend myself to an infinitely holy God. It is to deny myself, to die to self, to take up a cross, and to be ready to follow Jesus Christ anywhere He leads, to do anything that He requires, and to be willing to pay any price that would be incumbent in this. It is to see my utter sinfulness. It is to see my utter smallness, my utter selfishness before God, and to look to Him and His grace and His mercy to fill me up with the fullness of who He is. Until we come to this place, nothing else of any spiritual value will ever become reality In my life. That is what it is to be poor in spirit. The focus of the message this morning is to address this question. Why is being poor in spirit so important? Why is it first? Why is it foundational? Why is it fundamental? Why is it the key for everything else? I want to give you now five headings that I believe will give to us compelling reasons why this must be first, not only in the Word of God, but in the lives of the people of God. Number one, it is absolutely necessary for salvation. No one can be saved without being poor in spirit. No one can be saved without acknowledging that they are spiritually bankrupt before a holy God and that they have less than any spiritual capacity to commend themselves to God in order that He might receive us. It is to come to the place where I recognize that in my hands no price I bring. Simply to Thy cross I cling. I want to direct you to 1 John chapter 1. 1 John chapter 1. I want to spend just a couple of minutes looking at this passage to show that it is absolutely necessary for salvation. No one will ever enter the kingdom without declaring personal spiritual bankruptcy. Coming to grips... With the fact that I'm a sinner from the top of my head to the bottom of my feet, every inch, every ounce of me has been affected by the pollution of original sin that has come to me from Adam and by nature of the nature I have received from Adam. 1 John chapter 1, I want to look at verses 5 through 10. This book begins with this apostolic declaration. It begins with the highest plateau. This is the message we have heard from Him and announced to you. That God is light and in Him there is no darkness at all. To announce that God is light is to declare His absolute holiness that God is transcendent and majestic, high and lifted up, enthroned in the heavens above, and that He is sinless, He is morally perfect, He is blameless, He is flawless, He is perfect in all of His ways, perfect in His judgments, perfect in His will, perfect in His Word. God is light, and in Him there is no darkness at all. God is brighter than 10,000 suns. In the sky above, blazing forth in infinite holiness. Now, what do you think is the result of anyone who would even remotely draw near to this God? What do you think would be the effect of anyone saying, I will come to God. I will turn to God. I will entrust my life to God. I will turn my back on the darkness of this world. I need God. I want God in my life. What do you think is the effect of drawing near to an infinitely holy God who is... Infinite light, and in Him there is no darkness at all. The following verses will describe two kinds of people. Those who are mere religious pretenders, and those who in fact have actually come to God. I don't know if you've ever noticed this in 1 John, but there is in every other verse back and forth in verses 6 through 10, between those who say and those who do. Verses 6, 8, and 10 all begin exactly with the same words, if we say, and the ones who are described as if we say, are those who are just a bunch of spiritual hot air. There is no reality of coming to God in their life God for them is just talk. And the reason that we know this in these verses is because there is no acknowledgement whatsoever on their part that there is any sin in my life. How blind can blind be? And then in verses 7 and 9 is the reality of the One who actually has been born again who actually has come into a saving relationship with God through Jesus Christ, and it is this one, when he comes to God, it is the light of the glory of God that makes known all of his sin. And he stands before a holy God and confesses his sin and acknowledges his sin. This is the one who is poor in spirit the one who acknowledges that I have no spiritual capital before a holy God to commend my way to Him. So look at verse 6. We begin with the, the pretender. If we say... Now this is the one who says, Lord, Lord. If we say that we have fellowship with Him... That means if we say we are saved, if we say we have a relationship with Him, if we say we've come to know Him, and yet walk in the darkness. Darkness represents sin. It pictures one who just continues to walk in sin, has no conviction of sin in his life. Uh, Sin is what someone else does, not me. Never turns away from sin never confesses sin, never acknowledges sin, just continues to walk in the darkness. Notice what John says. We lie. You say to me you're a Christian, God says you lie. Your testimony is a lie. Your confession of Christ is a lie. There is no reality. And the reason is, is because you have not come to grips with the sin that is in your life. He says, we lie and do not practice the truth. But look at verse 7. How different but, verse 7 begins with but, shift in contrast. But if we walk in the light, oh, this one is not walking in the darkness. This one has forsaken the darkness. This one has turned away from the darkness. This one has turned to the light. This one has acknowledged the sin because the light of God has revealed all of my imperfections. If we say that we, excuse me, verse 7, but if we walk in the light as He Himself is in the light, Now, that's important. That means you have a personal relationship with God. That means you walk with God stride for stride. You're going in the same direction with God. You have partnership with God. You have fellowship with God. You have communion with God. You talk to Him in prayer. He talks to you in His Word. It is a vital, living, dynamic relationship. If we walk in the light as He Himself is in the light, we have fellowship with one another, referring to the other truly born-again ones. Now he puts this at the end of verse 7. Almost seems to be an odd addition, except he comes back to the subject of sin. And the blood of Jesus, his son, cleanses us from all sin. This is to say standing. Here at the entrance into the kingdom of God, there is the blazing bright light of the holiness of God. And all who genuinely approach God and enter into a relationship with Him have come to the personal knowledge of their own wickedness and depravity and corruption and transgressions and sin and confess my sin. It is these that the gates of heaven open wide for. And the cleansing blood of Jesus Christ washes away every sin. But look at verse 8. Verse 8 goes back to the counterfeit Christian. Verse 8 goes back to the one who refuses to confess their sin, refuses to acknowledge their sin. Look at verse 8. If we say, <laughs> there's that there's that phrase, it, it just flags our attention. If we say that we have no sin, we are deceiving ourselves and the truth is not in us. This is to say the only way of entrance into the kingdom of God is to be like the leper who approaches the city and was required to say, unclean, unclean. Everyone who genuinely enters into the light of the kingdom of God is the one who comes saying, unclean, unclean, and the blood of the Lord Jesus Christ is applied, but to deny that and to say, there is no sin in me, God says, your testimony is a lie, the truth is not in you, and you are self-deceived. You are disconnected from any reality. Then look at verse 9. He comes back from the, if we say... To now the one if we do, and what this person does, this is the true Christian. This is the one who actually comes to grips with what is the fact about their life that there is sin. So verse 9 he says, if we confess our sins, stop right there. You know what the word confess means? It's a Greek word which means to say the same as homo Legeo Ligeo means to speak, homo means of the same. Homo means to say the same as God says about your life. Well, God says we've all sinned and fallen short of His glory. God says there's none righteous, no, not one. God says we all like sheep have gone astray. Each one of us has turned to his own way. That's what God says. Now, either we say God is a liar... Or we say the same as God says about my life. And this is what God says about every life here today that we have sinned and we must agree with God's diagnosis of our lives. If we confess our sins, notice it's in the plural, all of our sins. He is faithful and righteous to forgive us our sins. The word forgive means to cancel out a debt. Uh, To wipe the slate clean, we would say in the vernacular. God is so quick by His grace and mercy in Christ to fully and freely and forever cancel out the debt of our sin that has been acquired against Him But what is necessary is for us to come to Him and say, I agree with you. I am a sinner in the light of your holiness. If we confess our sins, He is faithful and righteous to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. That is grace. That is mercy. That is our rich salvation in Christ. And then in verse 10, he comes back one more time to the if-we-say crowd. The ones who simply strut around self-sufficient, religious, self-confident, and have never agreed with God about the sin in their life and what an offense that sin is to an infinitely holy God. So verse 10, if we say that we have not sinned, now this becomes worse. This, this is escalated now. We make Him a liar. And His Word is not in us. Let me tell you, God says you are a sinner and the wages of your sin is death. Death. And if you do not agree with that, you're calling God a liar. And you are so foolish. What this is saying in 1 John, as it stands at the beginning of this epistle, is exactly what Jesus is saying in, Blessed are the poor in spirit, as it stands at the beginning of His sermon. That there is no entrance into the kingdom of heaven until we come under the conviction of our sins. Let me tell you, I can't convict you of your sin. It, It does me no good to raise my voice, lower my voice, throw out some platitudes, some illustrations, go to my synonym finder, come up with all kinds of different words, try to catch this in a way to kind of knock, kind of catch you off guard. You must come under the conviction of the Holy Spirit of God who presses this to your heart that you are a sinner and you must acknowledge your sin and agree with God that your sin is a terrible, awful violation of the holiness of God. And that you deserve to be damned in hell forever for just the smallest sin that you've ever committed in your life. That you have offended the infinitely holy God of heaven and earth. You have offended Him because you have chosen to live in rebellion Against Him. You are a part of the cosmic rebellion against God. And it is only those who turn to the light and turn to God and in turning to the light see their sin exposed by God and say, God, I see it. I see what you see about me. God, I agree with your, your diagnosis of me. I acknowledge it. I confess it. God, I am a sinner. Unclean, unclean. God, be merciful to me, the sinner. Being poor in spirit is to acknowledge and confess your sin to God. And that morally you have absolutely nothing to cover over your sin. You stand naked and exposed before the light of His holiness. And the fig leaves that you would try to put on to cover your nakedness is no covering before the eyes of Him with whom we have to do. Why is poor in spirit first? Why is it the foundational virtue? Because until you have come to this point, you're on the outside. You are outside the camp. You are outside the kingdom. You are outside the city. And to come into the kingdom... You must acknowledge that you are poor in spirit. I fear that there are people here today who have never come to this place of acknowledging and confessing in the depth of your soul that God, I am unclean, God, I am filthy. And my life is a stench in your nostrils. Wash me. Cleanse me. Make me whole. This is number one. It is absolutely necessary for salvation. Number two. It is absolutely necessary for spiritual growth. You will only be able to grow spiritually to the extent that you remain poor in spirit. It's not that now that I'm into the kingdom, that's all behind me, and I don't ever have to deal with my sin again. Nothing could be further from the truth. In fact, Jesus will later in this very same sermon, in the Sermon on the Mount, when He gives the model prayer in Matthew chapter 6 and in verse 12, He says that we are to pray this every single day of our spiritual lives and forgive us our debts as we have forgiven our debtors. And this is so singularly important that out of the Lord's Prayer, there is only one line that Jesus circles back around and repeats in order to underscore it. If you do anything in prayer, do this. He repeats in verse 14 and 15 this very same teaching for us that when we come before God and pray, our father who is in heaven, hallowed be your name, your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread. Forgive us our debts as we have forgiven our debtors. Do not lead us into temptation. Deliver us from evil. He circles back around now in verse 14 as if to say, oh, and by the way, this is extremely important for your spiritual life. If you're to grow in the grace and knowledge of me, Verse 14, And if you forgive others for their transgressions, your heavenly Father will also forgive you. But if you do not forgive others, then your Father will not forgive your transgressions. We see it here on an ongoing daily basis. We must continue to confess our sins and to acknowledge our sins. That is what Jesus is teaching here. Colossians 2 verse 6 puts it this way as you have received Christ Jesus the Lord so walk in him when we look for example in psalm uh, 50 uh, psalm 32 and verses uh, 3 and 4 we see again how important it is that we be those in our spiritual life who are on an ongoing basis you say how do you know you're supposed to do this daily Because Jesus said, give us this day our daily bread. And in the next verse He says, and and confess your sins to God. As often as you are daily asking God to meet your needs, that is how often you are to be confessing your sin to God. And if we do not confess our sin to God in, in our daily Christian life, it is like trying to drive your car with the emergency brake on. You're just not going to get anywhere. You will be held back from spiritual growth. So he says in Psalm 32, beginning in verse 3, David talks about a time in his life when he, when he had sinned and he refused to confess it to God. He, he refused to acknowledge it to God. When I kept silent about my sin, my body wasted away through my groaning all the day long. Verse 4, for day and night your hand was heavy upon me My vitality was drained away as with the fever heat of summer. And that's the idea there of driving your car with the emergency brake on. You have no spiritual vitality. You have no spiritual drive. You have no spiritual energy. You have no spiritual dynamic power in your life. And it is because of the unconfessed sin in your life. You refuse to see yourself as poor in spirit. So then he says in verse 5, I acknowledge my sin to you. That is to confess our sin. That is to say, God, I am poor in spirit. And to name those sins to God, and my iniquity I did not hide. Now, I've told you this before. If we try to hide our sin from God as a Christian, God's going to flush it out in the open. God's going to bring it out in the open. Be sure your sin will find you out. But if you will bring your sin out in the open and confess it to God then God will do the opposite. God will hide it and cover it. We try to hide it. God exposes it. When we expose it, God hides it. What a paradox. And he says at the end of verse 5, and you forgave the guilt of my sin. This is very clear teaching from the Word of God that as we live our Christian lives as we would grow in the grace and knowledge of the Lord Jesus Christ, we must be so sensitive to sin in our lives. We must be, as David at the end of Psalm 139, and be continually saying to God, Search me, O God, and know my heart. Try me and know my anxious thoughts. And see if there be any hurtful way in me. And for God to make this known to me so that I might acknowledge it and confess it. Say, what sin is there in your life right now that needs to be confessed to God, to be acknowledged to God? And remember, if we say we have no sin, we deceive ourselves and the truth is not in us. We must be always, continually, daily, in an ongoing basis, confessing and acknowledging our sins to God. We must always be poor in spirit, and saying to God, I have need of your forgiveness. So second, it is absolutely necessary for spiritual growth. Do you desire to grow as a Christian? Do you desire to bear fruit? Do you desire to become mature in the things of the Lord? And then it requires confessing our sin. Number three, it is absolutely necessary for effective ministry. In order to be used by God, the Lord will only use one kind of a vessel, and that is a clean vessel. God will never use an unclean instrument to perform His work. And when we read the Word of God, we read people that when God calls them and commissions them and uses them mightily, they are people who are poor in spirit and cannot believe that God would use someone like them. Let me give you several examples. The first would be Moses. You remember when God commissioned him to go to Pharaoh and to say, let my people go? Moses felt deeply unworthy of the task and he was deeply conscious of his poverty of spirit And his inadequacy and his insufficiency, he was the opposite of a self-reliant person. He was the total opposite of a self-confident person, emphasis on self. Moses said, please, Lord, I have never been eloquent, neither recently nor in time past, for I am slow of speech and slow of tongue. God, you would want to use me? He can't believe it. Because he is so poor in spirit. He does not think more highly of himself than he ought to think. Oh, I knew God would finally get around to me. He can't believe it. The same was true with Gideon. He was poor in spirit in Judges chapter 6. You recall, the angel of the Lord appeared to him. And when the angel appeared to him... He said, Go and deliver Israel from the hand of Midian. And Gideon responded, My family is the least in Manasseh, and I'm the youngest in my father's house. I'm in the least tribe, I'm in the least family in the least tribe. I am the least member of the least family of the least tribe in all of Israel. God, you've had to reach to the bottom of the barrel to put your hands on someone like me. May I suggest to you that is the very reason why God chose him? Because he was so poor in spirit. The same could be said of David. When the Lord appointed him, David said, Lord, who am I that you should come to me? This was baffling, bewildering to David. That God would come to him and use him? He was so poor in spirit. Think of Isaiah. When Isaiah came into the temple after King Uzziah died and he saw the, the light of the holiness of God, Remember? How did Isaiah respond? Woe is me, for I am ruined. For I am a man of unclean lips, and I live among a people of unclean lips. For my eyes have seen the King, the Lord of hosts. There is an immediate awareness of his own sin. And he said, oh no, God, you can't use me. Lord, I'm too... I'm a man of unclean lips. Everyone around him would say, that's the best thing going about your life, Isaiah. You can speak better than anyone else. You're a prophet. You've been called by God. I'm a man of unclean lips. What is more, I live among a people of unclean lips. That's why God commissioned him. Because he was so poor in spirit. Isaiah would go on to say, For thus says the High and Exalted One who lives forever, whose name is Holy, I dwell in a high and holy place and with the contrite and lowly of Spirit. God's glory is primarily revealed in two places in the universe. One, around His throne in heaven. And two, in the lives of those who are contrite and lowly of spirit. And those who are poor in spirit. What a juxtaposition. What a, what, a, what a contrast. What a polarization. The glory of God is being manifested in the heights of heaven and with those on the earth who are the lowest, with a contrite spirit. Isaiah 66, verse 2, God says, I will look to this one. Do you want God to look your way today? Do you want God to pay attention to you? Do you want God to draw near to you and pour His glory and grace into your life in abundant measure? Listen to what He says. I will look to this one, to Him who is humble and contrite of spirit, and who trembles at My Word. The lower you go before God, the higher He will raise you up in spiritual growth. We see the same with Peter. Naturally self-assertive. Naturally self-confident. Someone who's never been wrong in his life. Someone who seems to always speak He even cracks the Lord at times when we read the Gospels. But at the miraculous catch of fish, Peter suddenly realized he was standing in the presence of Him who is infinitely holy. And Peter acknowledged how poor in spirit he is. He said, depart from me, Lord, for I am a sinful man. Depart from me, meaning we can't work together. I I can't be on your team. There's no way you can use me. I'm a sinful man. It is that man that God uses. Same with Paul. He was so poor in spirit. And let me tell you, if there's anyone who could rest in their giftedness, rest in their intellect, rest in their brilliance. It would have been the Apostle Paul. He could make every one of our heads turn with the brilliance and giftedness that had been bestowed upon him. But listen to what Paul says. I was with you in much weakness and in fear and in much trembling. That is the talk of a man who is poor in spirit. He went on to say, Let a man regard us in this manner as servants of Christ and stewards of the mysteries of God. He went on to say, Not that we are adequate in ourselves to consider anything as coming from ourselves, but our adequacy is from God. That is another way of saying, I am poor in spirit. I have nothing, I am nothing, and I can do nothing apart from the grace of God in my life. Honestly, have you come to see that? Before God has this sunk in, I am nothing. I have nothing. I can do nothing apart from Christ. Jesus said in John 15, verse 5, I am the vine, you are the branches. Abide in Me, and I in you. For apart from Me, you can do nothing. When you're disconnected from the vine, when you're self-sufficient, when you're self-reliant, there's nothing that you can do in your spiritual life that is of any spiritual benefit or value whatsoever. I must hasten. Number four. We're answering the question, why is being poor in spirit so important? Why is it first on the list? We said you can't enter the kingdom without it. You can't grow and mature without it. Number four, it is absolutely necessary for true prayer. It is only the one who is poor in spirit who actually really prays. When we are not poor in spirit, it's just... we're just talking to ourselves. We're just preaching to ourselves. It is only when we realize... That from him and through him and to him are all things, and that I am nothing, I have nothing, and I can do nothing. Do we actually really begin to pray? and to plead with God to supply all that I need in my life. As long as I think that I can fix it, as long as I think that I am the solution to this, as long as I think in my own strength, in my own ability, in my own wisdom, in my own uh, giftedness, that I can work this out, I will never pray even when I do pray. I'm not praying. It is only when I come to realize that I am poor in spirit and I am nothing, I have nothing, and I can do nothing apart from God, do I then call out to the Lord and begin to wrestle with Him in prayer, God, accept You bless, There will be no blessing in my life. And we see this kind of desperate prayer illustrated in the life of Jacob, who wrestled with the Lord through the night in Genesis 32. Jacob was a desperate man, and at the end of this struggle with the angel of the Lord who was in reality the pre-incarnate Christ. Because he says he's looked into the face of God. Jacob was a desperate man and he said, I will not let you go unless you bless Me. And it is this kind of desperation... That one who is poor in spirit exhibits before God in heaven. It brings about fervency. It brings about desperation. It brings about a reaching out to God, a a clinging to God, a, a calling upon God. A sense of urgency. Oh God, you must hear. Oh God, you must come down. God, you must extend your right arm. God, if you do not answer this prayer, it will not come to pass. He realizes that if He is to know blessing, if we are to know blessing, then God must bestow it or we will never have it. It is absolutely necessary in true prayer to be poor in spirit. And to come before the throne of God as a beggar. This idea of people who think prayer is they can name it and claim it are the most arrogant peacocks strutting around the earth. Commanding God, ordering God, telling God what to do. Arrogance on steroids. To be poor in spirit is to be a beggar. is to realize I have nothing, I am nothing. I can do nothing. I reach out to God with an empty hand. And with great humility, I humble myself before the throne of grace and say, "Oh God, you must bless me." First Peter five, six and seven, listen to it again. Therefore, humble yourselves under the mighty hand of God. Peter might as well have said, Be poor in spirit. Humble yourselves under the mighty hand of God, that He may exalt you at the proper time, casting all your anxiety on Him, for He cares for you. We must be poor in spirit if we are to truly pray to God. There's a fifth and final heading that I want to set before you. And there is so much that could be put in this heading. But just to complete our thought, it is absolutely necessary for abundant grace. When we are poor in spirit... When we are poor in spirit, is when we are rich in joy, rich in peace, rich in happiness, rich in strength, rich in abundant grace in our lives. It is only when we are poor in spirit that even when we find ourselves in the most difficult trials of life, that we are so humble, we say something like this to ourselves. I certainly do not deserve better than this trial. In fact, I deserve worse than this trial. I'm amazed that I have not experienced worse. If God was to give to me what I truly deserve, I would be in hell right now. Anything better than hell is more than what I deserve, is better than what I deserve. And it is those who are poor in spirit, when they find themselves in the most difficult hours of adversity in their life, they know a joy and a peace that surpasses all comprehension because they are so dependent upon God and they know I deserve nothing better than this trial. In fact, I deserve far worse. And it's why, in the early church, after the believers were flogged and ordered not to speak in the name of Jesus, I mean, they didn't set up little small support groups after that. Let's just all cry on each other's shoulder, tell each other how bad it is. I'll throw up on you. You throw up on me. We'll just kind of, I don't know, we'll just kind of cry on each other. It says in the next verse that they went on their way from the presence of the council rejoicing. Did you hear that? Rejoicing that they had been considered worthy to suffer shame for His name. That's Acts 5, 40-41. That's why when we read of Peter in Philippi in the middle of the night after he had been flogged to death, or to the point of death, he's singing hymns and psalms in the inner sanctum of that prison while he's in bonds and stocks because he is so poor in spirit. Listen, I've stood in, at, in, at hotel counters and airport counters and restaurants lately and somebody gets one french fry out of place. Somebody has one towel that's not hung up just right in their hotel room. And they are ready to burst a blood vessel. Angry, demanding, whining, complaining. complaining. You know why? Because they think they deserve something better than what they're receiving. They are arrogant. They could strut sitting down. They are nothing but... Arrogant peacocks. They deserve to be in hell. And it is only the mercy of God that they're not already there. But those who are poor in spirit know how to endure difficulty and adversity with a joyful heart and give glory to God. Because they know I am nothing, I have nothing, and I can do nothing apart from Christ in my life. I must bring this to conclusion, but I want to ask you this simple question, or two simple questions. Number one, do you see why poor in spirit is so important? Do you see it? It is as clear as a bell. Number two, are you... Poor in spirit. And maybe, number three, if not, why not? You must be emptied before you can be filled. You must become poor if you are to have the riches of heaven. You must be nothing before you can have all things. And sir, that's the way it is in the kingdom of God. Ma'am, that's the way it is with God. Let us all here today clothe ourselves with humility. Let us all come to God and say, unclean, unclean. Let us all say to God, woe is me, for I'm a man of unclean lips. Let us all say to God, forgive me of my sins. Let us confess our sins to God. Let us lower ourselves in His presence. And He will exalt us. And He will clothe us. And He will bestow the riches of His grace upon us. If you've never for the first time Come to this place in your life. God has brought you here to hear this. There is no way around this. There is no other way to enter into the kingdom. You cannot crawl over the wall and bypass this narrow gate. You must come to the place today, this very moment, where you say, I am a great sinner and Christ is a great Savior Lord Jesus I surrender my life to you receive me in spite of myself if you will do that today for the first time the gates of paradise will swing open And the riches of His forgiveness will be poured out upon your life and you will be made clean and made rich in His grace. Why would you refuse to admit what is true? And why would you not receive what is being offered to you? Let us pray. Father in heaven, we want to be a people who acknowledge to you that we are poor in spirit. Lord, we do not want to be a haughty people. We do not want to be self-righteous. We do not want to be self-confident. Lord, we say to you that this entire church, in and of ourselves, we deserve to go to hell. We deserve to be damned forever. For we know the wages of our sins is death. We say to you, unclean, unclean. We say that all of our righteousness is as filthy rags in your sight. Remove our filthy rags. Clothe us with purity and righteousness that can come only from Christ. Make us those who are confessors of our sins. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. You have been listening to Following Christ a weekly devotional podcast from One Passion Ministries and Dr. Stephen J. Lawson For more information about One Passion Ministries please visit our website at onepassionministries.org Until next time thank you for joining us for Following Christ